Welcome to What Matters Now. This is another informal conversation in my home. I'm Amanda Borchel-Dan with our senior analyst, Khaviv Rettigour. We are here to discuss visions of victory, competing visions of victory, and we're going to go around the region and describe what each one hopes for. We are recording Thursday morning, and last night there was an impassioned press conference by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in which he described his vision of victory, which I will just quote a few things from. He said that surrendering to Hamas's delusional demands would destroy Israel, essentially. He said that Hamas's defeat is the victory of the entire free world, that it's a matter of months, and the day after the war is the day after Hamas. Khaviv, what do you make of Netanyahu's vision of victory, and do you think it is the vision of Israel? I think that I speak for most Israelis. We have wonderful polls on this. The majority of Israelis don't believe Netanyahu anymore. Netanyahu uh, here is staking a political position that serves his political problem, which is that he has crashed in the polls and he really hasn't won an election poll since January 2023 because of judicial reform initially, which lost him. It was a very narrow victory back in November 2022. And then he lost some seats to the center in judicial reform and many seats to the right in the polls um, after October 7th. So he has a political problem. And what's interesting about the press conference is that that is the official stated position of the state of Israel from day one. It's the army's uh, view of victory. It is Gallant's, the defense minister's view of victory. It is Gantz's view of victory. We've heard some different things come from Gadi Eisenkot, member of the war cabinet, but it's generally what polls tell us Israelis want. They want Hamas removed from Gaza. The cabinet decision that declared war back in October said um, it would remove Hamas's, how did it go, um, governance and military capabilities from Gaza. In other words, when is the war won? Not when Hamas ceases to exist as some kind of political idea among Palestinians, but when the regime in Gaza is gone. So Netanyahu's argument that that is, that is the government's position isn't new. And his argument is really trying to um, lay out or rally the troops, um, uh, rally his, his political camp around the idea, because increasingly we're seeing protests for hostages. Right. So I'd like to just point out that immediately following the Netanyahu press conference, the hostage families got together and they put out another press conference, a statement saying that for the released hostages, the release of the remaining, and they said 136 is an absolute victory. And they're counting, of course, the four who were in Gaza prior to October 7th. And then they said, of course, we can deal with Hamas later. So the prioritization, of course, is uh, opposite between the hostage families and Netanyahu. The problem is that when you get into this debate over what to prioritize, it's a little bit of a debate that we journalists invented. Because since um, really the end of October, when when the um, ground invasion was beginning, I think October 25th, 26th, something like that, 
The families of the hostages, and there were many more hostages at the time, came to Defense Minister Gallant and literally said to him, you're killing our family. You're starting this ground invasion of Gaza when these 200 plus, uh, 240, I think it was, uh, hostages are held by Hamas and we'll never get them out now, now that there's this massive war coming to them. And they had a meeting, a literal meeting in um, Gallant's office in army headquarters in Tel Aviv. And Gallant laid out the... Israeli policy on hostages that has been the policy since. And it was a closed-door meeting, but the families basically told the press everything that was said there right afterwards. And what Gallant said was, if we play Hamas's game, we lose. If we let them dangle out a hostage every two weeks, they will be immune for years and they will carry out 15 more October 7th. What we have to do, I'm obviously paraphrasing from the reports, what we have to do is massively pressure Hamas militarily to the point where the only way they buy a respite, time to breathe, is hostages. And then the cost of hostages that we pay will go down. We'll be able to pay the cost Hamas will demand because Hamas's real ask will be, let us live another day. And then we'll be able to get large numbers out. Now, that strategy says that the military campaign to destroy Hamas and getting out the hostages are one in the same. They are stages on the same actual activity and the same actual path. And it also has been massively validated. We already got more hostages out. Let's, we, I mean, I don't know about you, but on October, let's say 10, when I began to understand the scale of the hostage situation, I didn't think we'd have this many out at this point. Did you? I thought they were all dead. So we, we th- this Gallant policy and the army policy has already worked. Now, uh, two weeks ago, I think it was, the hostage families um, started a protest in Tel Aviv. And everybody was stunned because something like 100,000 people showed up. And that's very curious. And I've asked a lot of these people who support this protest. I've asked them just the, the simple d- analytical question. The more you pressure the government to prioritize hostages, the more expensive the hostages are. Hamas speaks Hebrew. If it looks like the government has no choice but to cave to your demands, they'll raise the cost. So you're making it harder to get the hostages out. What's wrong with the old strategy? And at every conversation, the answer was the same. It was not about the hostages. It was about the, it was massively about the hostages. But the tactical question, they completely agree. They're not stupid. They know that the best way to get the hostages out is to lower their cost, not to raise it. It's about trust. They do not trust that this government, and specifically it focuses, and by the way, in polls on the right as much as on the left, Smotrich voters, something like a third of Likud voters, there is no trust in Netanyahu. Netanyahu went into this war with a massive trust deficit from the judicial reform, and now he's trying to maneuver in this war, never having stopped campaigning for his own survival. And that is seen by everybody, and everybody agrees that that is what's happening. And so they say that this is Netanyahu, they have come to the determination, these protesters, that the way Netanyahu is functioning has nothing to do with what he thinks good policy is. It's about what he thinks will allow him to survive. He signs a very, very generous deal to Hamas. He's willing to sign a very generous deal to Hamas. And Smotrich and Ben-Gvir threaten his coalition, and then he backs off and suddenly he's hawkish and tough. And so they're saying, well, 
if the only thing, if Netanyahu always chooses the path of least resistance, if there's no backbone there, if we can't trust him to follow the policy that Gallant laid out at the beginning, or to prioritize, even when it's possible, as part of the war effort, the hostages, then we have to pressure him and threaten him, because that's the thing he responds to. That's the only thing he responds to. And that's what those protests are about. And so we're not having a debate Maybe. Khabib, one thing on that, though, is that uh, every uh, end of Shabbat, there are several uh, protests. And the first protest is the one against Netanyahu, the anti-government protest. And it is markedly, markedly smaller than the one that happens at Hostages Square, which is in support of the hostage families and demanding the that they are released immediately there are there is a semi separation between these protest movements and in the meantime the support for the hostages is much higher than the support for the anti-government demonstration i completely agree the the old politicking is coming back, but in a very, very limited way. It's coming back not explicitly, not openly, not brazenly, not on Netanyahu's side and not on his opponent's side. It's coming back using vocabulary of the war. So Israelis who don't like this government are still, because there are hundreds of thousands of soldiers in Gaza, because soldiers are fighting and dying, because the country is mobilized, and, you know, Tel Aviv, uh, not Tel Aviv, the city, but Tel Aviv, the culture, that half of Israel, this, the, the, I don't know what to call it, the opposition voter half of Israel, um, is as mobilized, is slightly more mobilized in terms of military service, in terms of the number of, of reservists, than the coalition part of Israel. Everybody feels this. This isn't something that's politically on one side or the other. And so you don't have old anti-Netanyahu protests. Because that is a, a betrayal of the soldiers who are fighting now. The Netanyahu voter soldier and the opposition voter soldier are fighting shoulder to shoulder in Gaza. And so that feels like a betrayal. But on the hostages, you can have that conversation about trust. And so we're using these war issues as a vocabulary to bring back the politics. But I also think it's absolutely honest. In other words, they really think that in the end, if Netanyahu has to make a choice that holds Ben Gvir and Smotrich to his side or releases the hostages, he'll make the choice for himself rather than for the hostages. I don't know that that's Netanyahu's moral compass. Will he actually leave these people, these hostages, to rot in Gaza to preserve his coalition? I don't know. But they think so, and so they're protesting. And so we are not having a debate about prioritizing hostages or the defeat of Hamas. We're having a debate using that as a vocabulary to debate, do we trust Netanyahu? And if we don't trust Netanyahu, what do we as civilians, as citizens, do to affect the progress of the war? And that's very unhealthy. It's hard to fight a war without trust. I think there's another layer here, and it's what you just referenced earlier. It's the soldiers who are fighting in Gaza and their families, of course. And we're talking about you know tens of thousands of soldiers who are really dedicated to the stated goal of the Israeli government, but not necessarily because it's the the leadership. They're, they're dedicated because they're out there fighting on the ground and they understand the evil nature of the enemy that they're fighting and they believe deeply within their hearts after four months of warfare that this enemy needs to be destroyed regardless of who is the Prime Minister of Israel. Yes, We've all been talking to soldiers. We all know soldiers. They're coming out of Gaza. And everyone I have talked to has basically said the same thing. What they've said was, we're winning. 
we are fighting now unbelievably better, smarter, tactically smarter, more effectively, more professionally, more seriously. Um, our skill level is, are, is, is much, much higher than in the beginning. The army that went into Gaza in, October, in late October hadn't actually had a serious ground war in decades. It had these operations, some of them significant, but nothing on this scale. Nobody actually had ever experienced or knew how to do it. And the war looked that way. I mean, it was, it was a successful beginning in pure military terms. We're leaving aside here the soldiers who died, the huge toll on Gazan civilians, the political questions, the, just, just specifically to talk about military capability and prowess. The army that is now fighting in Khan Yunus is an order of magnitude more skilled at this kind of fighting. That is a major reason. One of the reasons that Palestinian civilian casualty rate has gone way down. Um, the argument has made... Um, outside of Israel, uh, that American pressure, British pressure, French pressure, pressure of our allies as much as our critics, um, has led to a shift from um, airstrikes to ground force battles. Um, and there's some of that. There's some of that because we know that because Israelis are responding to that, to the Americans, to the British. But um, the main reason, um, according to soldiers, is that a lot of the stuff that was done in Gaza City was the old playbook that was how the army thought you would have to move in because they thought the danger was this, or they thought the Hamas tactics were that, or they thought the... And then they got into the ground, then they maneuvered, and they, they've had battles, and they got experience, and they realized that a lot of that is unnecessary. Some new things are necessary they didn't have. The fight in Khan Yunus is smarter, it's more targeted, and it is more effective. They are destroying tunnels at a faster rate, they are losing fewer soldiers and killing way fewer civilians, and Hamas is feeling the pressure more than was happening in Gaza City. So it's a smarter, stronger, better army. These soldiers come out and say, it's just time. We don't need anything else. We will finish the job, but give us the time. And the job is getting rid of Hamas. And if we push out of Gaza City to the south, and then Hamas pops up again in Gaza City, because of course they will. That's what this is. Gallant on month one, back in October, said this is going to take months and months and months. And this is going to be after we win the war, quote unquote, there's going to be a counterinsurgency for a very long time. This is expected. That's what this war looks like. But the soldiers are saying, we can do it. And we can do the long war and the short war and the counterinsurgency. We can do it. Let us do it. The surge in anti-Semitism since the October 7th attacks has changed the Jewish community's relationship with a slew of social and political issues. In the newest episode of The Glue, Jewish Federations of North America President and CEO Eric Fingerhut talks to Congressman Richie Torres, who has proved to be a pro-Israel bridge builder about everything from DEI to social media. Their conversation is fascinating. Listen to it and subscribe to The Glue with Eric Fingerhut wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so that's basically a summation of the Israeli vision of victory. Now, I would argue that the Hamas vision of victory is actually happening right now. They still exist. Hamas exists. And this proposal that is the elephant in the room that we're not exactly talking about, but we will talk about for basically uh, 
dial down of the war until getting to some kind of final ceasefire agreement. And the fact that it's being treated so seriously by all the different partners in the region, including Israel, is, in my mind, Hamas's victory. They won. I don't think so. They, um, first of all, had a terrible time coming up with this position. They delayed and delayed and delayed and talked about consulting with all kinds of different factions. Hamas doesn't need to consult with different factions. Hamas is desperate, and parts of Hamas wanted whatever deal they can get. Parts of Hamas specifically in Gaza, Sinwar in Gaza, needs a reprieve. The army is closing in in Khan Yunis. Um, the Israelis aren't so much... Um, the, the, the Sinwar's problem is that he's beginning to understand that the Israelis are implacable, that they're not going to stop. And that understanding only dawns very late in the game, if you're Sinwar, if that's your strategy, if your strategy is this counter. And and that's that's something he isn't actually prepared for. And that the world is not going to stop Israel. Incidentally, if the ICJ had voted, to, had decided to order Israel to stop, it would not have stopped. And if America's missile shipments stop, Israel will not stop. And Sinwar is only now beginning to understand it, that his only choice is to decide how high a cost Gaza pays, because how lo- that's right by, as a function of how long it takes Israel to get to him. So he wants a reprieve. Um, in in the you know the more comfortable Hamas leadership uh, sitting in Qatar going to World Cup games um, doesn't want a reprieve. Um, the higher Gazan death toll is for them amplifies their cause, amplifies their situation in the Arab world, and strengthens the organization. They see victory as a victory of the hearts and minds of the Muslim world, not a victory on the ground. They don't care what happens to Sinwar. So that dis dissonance um, turned this Hamas offer, and Hamas came out with this ridiculous offer that they knew Israel couldn't accept. Leave Gaza. That's not an offer. That's Hamas not offering. That's Hamas spinning wheels. What's interesting, I think, is that Hamas has this vision of victory, or at least that part of Hamas, the political leadership that's very safe and not in Gaza, sees a vision of victory as essentially winning hearts and minds in the Arab and Muslim world. And there's evidence that Hamas has been wildly successful in doing that. Um, the Washington Institute for Near East Policy had a poll recently um, in Jordan, Egypt, the Emirates, uh, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Qatar, Kuwait, Abraham Accord countries, non-Abraham Accord countries, um, 85 to 92%, ranging from 85 to 92%, very high, very stable, very unified across all those countries, of the Arab publics say Hamas is winning that war. It's winning the war that matters be- for, it's a, how is it, uh, I'm, I'm going to misquote it, but it was something like, despite the devastation or, or the damage in Gaza and, and the casualties in Gaza, um, the war in Gaza is a victory for Palestinians, for Arabs, and for Muslims. Why? Because it has created this mobilization, this sense of unity, this sense of purpose, this sense of focus. And so Hamas thinks that it has done Exactly what Al-Qaeda did in 9-11, in other words, tried to do and failed to do. Al-Qaeda in 9-11 had a classic um, guerrilla um, insurgent strategy, which is you hit the enemy, the big powerful enemy, you force them to strike back at you in a devastating way, and the very devastation they inflict back on you makes the Muslim world rise up against America. That was Al-Qaeda's strategy. That was Hamas's strategy. Get the Israelis to come in and massacre, and as Hamas sees it, 
And it's, by the way, the FLN strategy in Algeria. It's the strategy of counterinsurgency. Make the French massacre 500,000 Algerians, and then the French will leave, because they, they will not be able to explain to themselves why they did that. So make the Israelis appear to be genocidal in Gaza. That argument about genocide, that what we're doing in Gaza is genocide, um, the point, that that's peace, that's... That's part of Hamas's strategy. In other words, show the Israelis to be, that you then mobilize the whole Muslim world, wake it up, force the Israelis out, right, with their tail between their... It's, an ex, it's, a, it's a way to exact a strategic cost on Israel, and it's working. That's their theory. You're reinforcing my argument that Hamas is winning. No, I'm just agreeing that Hamas thinks it's winning. Okay, so let's also talk about the other visions of peace for the Arab world. And uh, it was just announced that there's going to be a summit in Saudi Arabia with uh, five Arab states, which are, of course, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the UAE, Egypt, Jordan, and the PA is going. The Palestinian Authority is also going. It's all the foreign ministers are getting together to talk about the day after and what the reformed, quote-unquote, Palestinian authority that would rule in the Gaza Strip would look like. So that also makes me think that the Palestinian Authority's vision of victory is, well, ruling Gaza again. It's um, it's worth exp- saying, so now we're entering, I think, two visions of victory, which are both, they share one characteristic, which is neither of these visions of victory are about the war itself. They're about what happens after the war. The war is a path, is a stepping stone. Hamas is an obstacle to another horizon that is where victory can be found or lost. But the victory is the political solution after. And that is how we, the Americans are thinking and talking, and the, the West generally. And it's also how the Arab um, conservative Sunni states who want to normalize with Israel, aren't part of the radical axis, don't want Israel destroyed, but nevertheless can't move forward without a political horizon for the Palestinians. It's worth saying that um, there's something that this second camp, that it doesn't, that its vision of victory isn't a military vision, it's a political vision afterwards. There's something that they understand about the first camp, which is the various military visions of victory, that the first camp do not, the Hamas does not, that these these that the Arab and Muslim world, the, the the populations, the publics looking at this war do not, which is that this isn't Algeria. It is possible. The reason Hamas is wrong in thinking that it is winning is, in fact, it's it's useful for Israel, for the whole world to be set against it in this war and for it to still implacably move forward. That is useful because there is a story that Hamas tells Palestinians that we are this kind of colonialist enemy that can, through these colonial strategies, be pushed out. Meaning Israel is a colonial. Israel is, Mm -hmm. right. And it's hard to explain to them our history, that we are all the grandchildren of refugees, that in fact we come from 60 countries, that we have nowhere to go, and therefore that we're not going to get pushed out, and therefore that the Algeria strategy or the Kenya strategy or the Vietnam strategy is not going to work on us. It's hard to explain that analytically. I mean, we try, but it's hard. But you can explain it if you show it. And so we are now testing Hamas, Arab world, Palestinians telling pollsters the Palestinians are winning because this is the beginning of the end of Israel, because they are getting so many people upset at them. Telling pollsters that is fantastic 
for the war effort. And the reason it's fantastic for the war effort is that the only audience that matters in this war are Israelis and Palestinians. The global moral judgment does not actually matter. We are real humans living our real lives. Nobody can wish us out of existence. Not Israelis, not Palestinians. The two audiences who matter are the Palestinians and the Israelis. What my children's future will look like will be profoundly affected by what Palestinians think, not by what, I don't know what, college students in America or people in China or people, frankly, in Algeria think. And so I need to convince Palestinians that the message Hamas is selling them on, that the future, the strategy, sacrifice now, suffer now, go through interminable war now, because there is an ultimate, complete, and pure, and absolutely undeniable redemption coming, where the Jews all leave or die. That story isn't available to them. That is not going to happen. And therefore, Hamas is only destroying them. Now, how do I show them that? If the entirety of this whirlwind comes crashing down on me, and I'm still standing at the end of it. So, paradoxically, all of the things that the Arab world thinks are a victory all of that sense of of, of, of of vast mobilization and empathy for Palestinians, I hope they get a lot of empathy. They deserve empathy. But the think theory that that is the beginning of our end, that is being tested. And I'm happy that's being tested because I need them to see it fail so that they can wake up to new strategies, to better strategies that might work. And that brings us to the political questions, to the political solutions. What the Saudis and Emiratis have said to us, and they've said it, openly. We will be part of the rebuilding the day after. I interpret that to mean, finish the job and we'll clean up. I interpret that to mean, you need to get rid of Hamas. The Saudis and Emiratis have been in a deep internal Islamic civil war in the Sunni side between the conservative governments, the conservative ideas, and these radicals, the Muslim Brotherhood, of which Hamas is a part. And they would like that pushed back. Hamas is also embedded in the Iranian axis, even though it's Sunni and Iran is Shia, the basic ideas of, of Islamic renewal and the need to destroy Israel in order to renew Islam and bring Islam back into history as an agent of history, those basic ideas are shared between Hamas and the Iranian regime. And Saudi Arabia would like that pushed back as well. So they're desperate for us to win. But the only way they can win and still normalize and still have Israel as an ally and have that victory in Gaza be sustained. Netanyahu talks constantly about de-radicalizing Gaza. He wrote an, a Wall Street Journal op-ed talking about de-radicalizing Gaza. Nobody knows how to de-radicalize Gaza, right? It's not something we Israeli Jews know how to do. We don't know how to de-radicalize. Don't, I don't even know what the word might mean. How do I go into a Sunni Arab society and de-radicalize it, right? But the Saudis have de-radicalized Saudi Arabia after 9-11. They spent decades fighting tooth and nail, um, closing madrasas, um, arresting people, changing curriculum, and actually de-radicalizing their own society. So when they're saying, we're going to come in to help rebuild, that's not about building buildings. It is about building buildings, but America knows how to build buildings. What the Saudis offer, and they offer it so that the fall of Hamas sticks, so it doesn't come surging back, is de-radicalized. That's what they bring to the table is de-radicalization that nobody else can bring to the table. And so they're talking about almost a pro-Israel. It's not pro-Israel, it's pro-Palestinian, but it's it, it's massively in Israel's own interest, even you know, even in the view of, of, of a right-wing government, to de-radicalize 
um, uh, Gaza after Hamas and to make that victory stick. It depends on the victory, but after the victory, victory is not enough. You have to deliver that political horizon for Palestinians, and we're going to make it possible. The Americans are saying similar things. Biden, for domestic political reasons, and also, I think, because he genuinely believes it. He says, I'll hold the window open for you, finish off Hamas. But in his view, Hamas isn't the enemy, the purpose of the war. Hamas is the great obstacle, one of the great obstacles to two states, to peace, to a future that he, as a lifelong Democrat, believes in. And so if I get rid of Hamas, it makes it easier for me to come to Israel and say, okay, political horizon, let's have peace, let's have let's have self-determination for the Palestinians, right? See, I'm not actually convinced, let's talk about the American vision right now, I'm not actually convinced that the Americans really, really see Hamas as the evil empire that we see it, and as something that needs to be completely destroyed and moved out of Gaza. I don't, I'm not convinced of that. I could see an American position being, yes, have this reformed uh, PA, style uh, governance, but if Hamas is voted in, then it's voted in. I don't know. I don't know to speak for Americans. I would be surprised. You know, in 2006, Israel didn't want to let Hamas run in those elections. And Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice uh, put pressure on Israel. She said, if Hamas don't run in the election, the election itself won't be as valid. We're trying to show that democracy works. And then, of course, Hamas wins. And I, I think from that experience, the Americans will draw the idea that it actually matters who wins more than process, because these are societies, you know, you're going to have the first election in two decades, who wins matters more, and establishing the demo- democracy is more important than than assuming you're six steps into the democracy already. Um, and so I, I, I don't know, maybe the Americans learned that lesson, maybe they didn't learn that lesson. Um but if the Americans think that Hamas leads Palestine or runs in an election, how are they not going to win? They're, they're 82% support in the West Bank right now. If they want to, after October 7 and after this war, hand Palestine, the entirety of the Palestinian polity in effect, to Hamas, then the American policymakers are very foolish. I suspect that Israel also won't let that happen. In other words, Israel has the capabilities in the West Bank, and it now has them in Gaza as well, to prevent Hamas from rising to power in those places. And as long as it thinks there's a threat of that, it will maintain those capabilities. So there is a political future of two states. It it, it really does depend on there not being a Hamas. I'll put it even simpler. Um, the world wants to pressure me to pull out of some areas of the West Bank Um in order to allow for a contiguous, viable, serious Palestinian state. And Hamas vows that every inch I pull out of it will use to murder my children. I'm probably not going to, it doesn't matter how far left I vote as an Israeli, I'm speaking me personally, I'm saying as Israelis, it doesn't matter how far left I vote, I'm probably going to believe Hamas more than the world. And so I I think they understand. I hope they understand. I'm not convinced, Khabib. I think a lot of the pressure that's on Israel is because of the optics, is because of the spin that Hamas has been so successful in creating on, for example, social media and the groundswell of support on campuses among young people. I, I really am not convinced that people fully fathom 
the horror that Hamas can wreak on society. I think it's been four months. I think people's memories are very dim of the atrocities that were committed because obviously the optics coming out of Gaza right now are so terrible. And my heart bleeds for all of the children and all the innocent who have been killed. There's no... There is no Israeli who is not empathetic to that. But at the same time, they don't understand in the roots of their bodies, like you and I do, that Hamas is evil. I don't know what to say to that. Um, I'm Israeli. They don't have to. I do. That's enough. If the college kids were seeing screaming on college campuses things they don't entirely understand, literally you ask them about them and they discover in two sentences they don't entirely understand what they're screaming. If they become the policymakers of the West in 30 years, and they then turn to the Hamases of the world and say, oh, you run places, we're good, we're happy, we like you, because you're, I don't know what, decolonizing, then they will bring a whirlwind of blood and death. And they'll grow up awfully fast, and they'll change. Uh, one of the interesting things that ha- keeps happening in this region to the supporters of Palestinians is that they keep delivering for Palestinians some small victory somewhere, and then Hamas keeps undoing it. They, they, there is nothing they can do for Palestinians that Hamas can't undo. And that is going to remain true. I am going to defend my people, and I'm going to defend my children, and I'm going to defend them no matter what the Americans say, and no matter what the Europeans say. And by the way, I, th- I think the Americans and the Europeans know that, and I think the Arab world knows that, and I think that they assume it, and I think that they're okay with it. And in as much as Hamas continues to sell Pal- Hamas's great tragedy, even October 7, okay, I'm going to say something that might be a little controversial among Jews. Hamas committed two atrocities on October 7. The first one it committed against us, the second one, by far the larger one, it committed against Gaza. Why did it commit this atrocity against Gaza? Because Hamas has done nothing for 17 years of control of Gaza. Literally, it hasn't built a damn thing. Find me another thing it built except those tunnels. Right, and for 17 years, the world has looked away. Why Israel has looked away. Israel has looked uh, away. No one could imagine that they actually meant to draw that war in and massacre that. But it, cre- it built Gaza as the government of Gaza, taxing Gazans, running Gaza. It built Gaza into a battlefield for a war it actually intended to bring into Gaza, using October 7 as a way to bring that war and guaranteeing civilian death. That's what those tunnels are. They're not anything else. Everyone was used by Hamas, the United Nations. We haven't yet discussed UNRWA. The United Nations was played by Hamas. All sorts of American funding, of course, was used by Hamas. Every single part of the world was played by Hamas. Absolutely, including Israel, because we could not imagine that they intended to bring this destruction on Gaza, and they intended to bring it. And this is what I'm saying. And that it is this the, is they evil. set the price for getting them out and then made it untenable for us not to get them out. And that's a crime they committed against Gaza, and it is vastly greater than the crime they committed against us. So they will destroy anything ever done for Palestinians by anybody. And Therefore, you know, their removal, and by the way, I do think President Biden knows that. And I I'm, I know that the Saudis know it because they say things like that, not always in public in front of the cameras. So that Hamas's removal, this, by the way, the Israeli right, the, or at least the far right, has said, when Hamas is gone, we have a problem. 
because the world's going to come to us with demands and we're not going to have this easy answer of Hamas. Does that mean that Hamas isn't a real answer that actually prevents us from doing things? No, it is a real answer. I genuinely can't do things with the Palestinians because Hamas, and not just Hamas, the specific organization, because of this vision, because of this, parts of Fatah are like this. But when that is gone, because the Israelis can no longer tolerate it at any cost, there are horizons that open up and there are hopes that that kind of victory discussion among the Saudis, among the Americans, is the next stage. And that's a victory, uh, um, that's an image of victory, an understanding of victory, um, that I think is something Israel does need answers for and does need to have its own visions. Not one. Israel doesn't do anything in one voice. Six. Six visions of victory for the day after that are political victories rather than just military ones. Khabib, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks for listening to What Matters Now, our weekly in-depth conversation. This episode was produced by The Pod Waves. If you have any questions or comments about this or any other episode, please drop us an email to podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until next week, shalom. <laughs>